A preacher waits most of his life to be able to say this. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13. And we'll look at the content through chapter 53. Now, when I was a student preacher, it's been a while. When I was a student preacher, the common complaint I got was twofold. One, you talk too fast, which they realized there was no stopping that. That's just what I do. I try to repeat it multiple times, so you hear it one of the times. The other one is you never smile. Now, you know I'm a happy guy. I like to joke. This passage, however, I apologize ahead of time. I won't smile much. But it's not because... It's not because I'm not happy. It's the burden of the weight of the Lord's word in this section of Scripture that has always subdued me in a way that I can't explain. I've touched on this passage many times over the year during Easter, during Good Friday, and so forth, but I've never had this experience. Uh, This is the only place I've ever been, so I've walked through this book of Isaiah with you. You've walked through this book with me. And to come to it in the context that we have studied is all the more weighty. It's all the more heavy. This, brothers and sisters, is a text that was written 700 years before Jesus came. Now, I know that a person cannot believe unless God opens their eyes. But it baffles me how anyone could look at this and not believe This is the fourth and the final of the servant songs. It's the greatest of the four servant songs in this 66-chapter book. Um, We have already seen three brief revelations in Isaiah that give us a picture of the servant who will do what Israel failed to do, what we failed to do. Adam failed, so God promised to send the second Adam God appointed Israel to reveal who that second Adam would be, the Messiah. He calls Israel to be his servant, his faithful servant. Now, it wasn't a mistake, if you will, that Israel failed at being that servant. It was more of of an opportunity by God's design to display the servant. So there would be no mistake about the only way of salvation. In fact, what's depicted in this fourth servant song, which starts in the last three verses of chapter 52? There shouldn't be chapter divisions here like this. It's, it's a mess. The chapter divisions were added later. The inspired word didn't have these chapter divisions. And this is starting clearly the fourth revelation of the servant. I mean, this is what differentiates Christianity from all other religions and philosophies. No other religion can point to what we have revealed for us here. And you'll see this as it is displayed. In fact, some religions even are repulsed by this idea of Jesus suffering and dying like this. Um, But this is necessary. This is the message we must have from God. This passage in Isaiah is perhaps the best summary statement in the Bible of Jesus' purpose and coming in our place to take what we deserved so that we might be redeemed and saved. So please hear, I will read uh, each of the next few weeks the whole passage, but then we'll take section by section uh, this fourth servant song, looking at the first three verses today, which are on your, bullet, uh, on your insert. Hear now God's inspired and inerrant word, Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, 
and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed." All we, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who, consider, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Franz Dalich, in his comments on this passage, wrote, It looks as if it had been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha. It is the loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecy has ever achieved. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we sit here in awe when we read this, your ancient yet timeless word from Isaiah. Lord Jesus, that you would be willing to suffer at a level none of us could ever, ever, ever fathom. It makes us bow in humble thanks and adoration before you. Lord God, that it would be your will to exact this plan in order to bring down the dividing wall of separation that our sin has brought so that we could be right with you, 
that we, by the Holy Spirit, could be made your adopted sons and daughters. It makes us cry out in thanksgiving and praise to you. Please, O Lord, help me to preach this passage and illumine our minds by your Spirit that we might understand and be transformed. I pray this in the name of Christ, the Lamb of God, who bore our sins. Amen. Polycarp is, was a disciple of the Apostle John in the first century. He died a martyr's death at the age of 86. He wrote quite a bit, but we only have a little bit of what he wrote at our disposal. In one small section from Polycarp, he says something about Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. He calls it the golden passionel of the Old Testament evangelist. Someone within a generation of seeing Jesus himself says this about Isaiah. You know, when you think of modern hero stories, the stories we like to hear, usually there's something like this. They're stories about fairness. They're stories about someone who's being treated wrong, and then a hero comes and rights the wrongs. Um, the bad guys get it. The good guys get what they deserve, that is freedom and, and security, and, and they're liberated, and they get justice, and the bad guys get the punishment. That's the kind of story we like. Fairness, equity, justice. That's what makes us comfortable. We see it on display. We like it. But when we read the gospel story, when we read what Isaiah reveals about the will of God for his son, it strikes us. It's unfair what we see here. Uh, the life and the work of Jesus, it's about the unfair, really. The life and work of Jesus is about injustice. The life and work of Jesus is about an innocent representative taking the punishment that we deserve. We're the bad guys. Yet he, the good guy, takes it for us. The story of Jesus' life and work, it's shocking when you read it, and that's exactly how the text puts it in these first three verses. Astonishing, this whole thing that we see. It's astounding. It staggers us. It stuns us, even. We, the guilty ones, are redeemed and set free by the unthinkable sacrifice of our innocent representative, God's servant, the only faithful servant to ever live, Jesus himself. For the next few sermons, we'll walk through this fourth servant song, in the book of Isaiah. Let's begin it with the first three verses, the introduction. It sets the stage. It kind of summarizes the whole of what Jesus would come to do, this servant. It opens by foretelling of Christ's eventual exaltation, but it will bring back to our minds his necessary humiliation. We have not seen that in full in the first three songs. Now it unpacks it. There's no way to mistake it. This fourth song explains how guilty people are made innocent, how unholy people are made righteous. Starting at verse 13, the exaltation of our Savior, which will be the, the, to, the sum total of his work as the Father accepts it, he will be exalted. And it starts this way and it sets our minds in the right direction to understand who it is we are talking about, who it is that is the faithful servant of God. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This opening salvo is important. There's a threefold exaltation of the servant. The servant will be high. The servant will be lifted up. The servant will be exalted. And it starts by saying, Behold, my servant. God is using the same formula that he used with the other servant songs to introduce once again in a climactic way this fourth servant song. It's the servant Messiah. Where Israel failed in their servitude, they were called to be God's servant back when he released them from Egypt. He told them what they needed to do covenantally and they failed. 
But Jesus, the servant of Jehovah, is the substitute. He's the one who will come. Behold my servant. And there will be relief because we know we're not his faithful servant. And he says, behold my servant. It is the servant of the Lord that fulfills all of God's saving promises. The arm of the Lord will be revealed. He will visit his people. He will restore. He will redeem. He will purchase them. He will rescue them. And the world will see this salvation as we discovered last week. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. The good news will now be anchored in the work that will allow for this news to be so good. God doesn't just haphazardly say, never mind about your sins. He has justice to uphold. So the good news goes out. You can be right with God. And here is how it happens. The work of the servant on our behalf. Behold my servant. Oswalt writes a wonderful commentary on the book of Isaiah. And he talks about this beginning. Behold. Don't just read past it too quickly. Behold, he says, serves not only as a stylistic element to mark the beginning of a new segment but also as a call to pay attention to this one who is about to be described. He is the one through whom Israel's covenant will be restored and through whom light will come to the nations. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. This would be unlike any other servant Israel had known, themselves included, certainly their former kings, certainly the priests that they knew, even the prophets. My servant shall act wisely. His wisdom will allow for the effectiveness that is required to pay. His wisdom will provide the necessary resolve for fulfilling his mission. One commentator says it could be translated, See my servant, his wisdom prospers. Christ knew exactly what God had commissioned him to do, and there would be no failure. The Israelites watched their human kings fail over and over and over again. None of them, none of them could be looked upon as utterly wise. Even Solomon, for all his wisdom, we know of all the errors he made. And it was under Solomon's rule that the kingdom started to divide, and then under his sons divided completely. I mean, you can go back to Saul. He wasn't wise. Even David, for all, all that God thought of him passionately, and he did. David could not be one that would be identified as acting wisely across the board. And certainly not his son Solomon, as mentioned. There were a few good kings that came along for sure, but could it be said of them that they acted wisely as a way to to characterize their kingship? Certainly not. It's not just that the servant would act wisely, but rather that he would know and do the very things necessary to satisfy God's mission and secure our redemption. He would not fail no matter what. We learn something important about the servant's identity here that sets him apart from the other uh, leaders of Israel in the past. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The words high and lifted up are significant here. Oswald points out that these words are used in combination only a few times in this book and nowhere else in the Old Testament. In the second greatest passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Listen to how these words are used, high and lifted up, exaltation. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Who's sitting on the throne? The Lord, God. High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. If that doesn't get the Israelites' attention, it better get ours. 
This is not a mere human servant. This is not Israel given some special faithfulness so now they can be the servant. This is not a new prophet like the other prophets or a new priest like the other priests or a new king like the other kings. High and lifted up is attributed to only one, God. Isaiah 33, now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. Later in Isaiah chapter 57, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. This can only be God himself. The servant of Jehovah is God the Son. God himself will do this work. God will secure it. Man has failed, but God will not fail in this plan. He is the servant of Jehovah. When high and lifted up and exalted are used in combination, it's about God alone. He shares no glory with man. Only he will be lifted up. And in the chapters prior, remember how he would, he would uh, exhort Israel to stop looking at man. Why do you exalt man? He will die. Remember how he said that to them? Because only one is lifted up. Only one is exalted. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is the Messiah, the anointed one. The servant of Jehovah is God. Paul, after the finished work of Jesus Christ, Jesus ascends. He appoints his apostles, Paul being one by special appointment. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in the book of Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He gave up his independent access to his his powers as God for a moment in this realm in order to be the Lord's servant in this way. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of the work that the servant did, because of the work Jesus did, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Behold, this last servant song begins, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now this marks a shift in the rest of the song, starting in verse 14. We go from a summary statement of what will be the case, because what you will hear next will shock you. It will, it will astound you. It will it'll shut the mouths of kings when they hear what God will do in order for this exaltation to take place, in order for our redemption and salvation to be secured. And it starts with our suffering Savior now in verse 14. As many were astonished at you, this brief phrase, to the servant himself. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Franz Dalich says, that his exaltation, the exaltation of the servant, would come out of his deep degradation. 
shocked by his appearance and sacrifice. Many were astonished at this picture of the way God would save. Totally different than any other message that would be given. Shocked by his suffering. All his suffering encompassed here. And it's manifested in his physical presence. His physical suffering contributed to the way he looked. His mental anguish, his soul anguish, all contribute to this description. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The the NIV translates this passage, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. In a paraphrased version called the New Living Translation, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human and from his appearance one would scarcely know that it was a man. This refers to the extreme state of suffering just before his sacrificial death. His appearance so marred After the Sanhedrin and the Romans got through with Christ, he was bruised, he was lacerated, swollen and bloody beyond human likeness. That's understandable enough when you research how they went about torturing a person in the manner they did before killing him. But let us recognize something we often overlook. There is more than the physical beating that he took that would have changed his countenance. He would have looked different even if he had not been beat up. Not as bad, but he would have looked different. The extreme duress of the task of redemption got heavier and heavier the closer he got to the cross. Have you ever seen a person stressed out? Someone just betrayed them and you were with them and they don't look like themselves. Their countenance is washed out. They, they can't muster a smile. Their, their muscles in their face stop working. They look different. Have you ever seen someone who has been grieved? They've lost someone they love. They don't look like themselves at that moment. Almost unrecognizable when grief and despair can come upon somebody's normal countenance. But imagine if you can the soul anguish of our Lord as he took upon himself the weight of the burden of all the sins of all God's people of all time upon himself. And for pointed hours while he was on the cross, the father turned his face away from the son and left him with all the weight of that burden. In Psalm 22, prophetically written 300 years before this text, describes the soul anguish of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by by night, I find no rest. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, they say to him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like like raving and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart melts like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind because mankind, along with God, had forsaken him at that moment. Charles Spurgeon, in preaching on this text, he said that the whole of his passion was marred. The whole of his passion marred his countenance and his form with its unknown suffering. I restrained myself, Spurgeon says, lest this meditation would grow too painful. They bound him, they scourged him, they mocked him, they plucked off the hair from his face, they spat upon him, and at last they nailed him to the tree. And there he hung. His physical pain alone must have been very great, but all the while there was within his soul an inward torment which added immeasurably to his sufferings. His God forsook him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is a voice enough to rend the rocks? And assuredly, it makes us all astonished when in the returning light we look upon his visage and we are sure that never a face of any man was so marred before. It never form of any son of man so grievously disfigured. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. This introduction uh, to the fourth servant song concludes with verse 15. Uh, It gives us a a brief vision of the reaction that Jesus' work of redemption would garner in its shocking state, in all of its stunning detail, our saving, conquering, enlightening Savior on display, verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This simple verse does create challenges in translating Some believe the opening statement should rather be translated, he will startle many nations. And you can see how that would be the case. Uh, But the Hebrew word is close, but well translated here. So shall he sprinkle many nations. What does this mean? To sprinkle something, especially in the context of a bloody sacrifice, in the context of the Old Testament, it harkens to the well-known sacrificial duties of the Old Testament priests. In the book of Exodus, not long after God had rescued Israel from Egypt, here is one example of this use. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron, who is the priest. Sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on, the son, on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. It's for sanctifying or consecrating or setting apart or cleansing. 
in the book of Leviticus, a book that's written to give instructions to the priesthood at that time, who were called to carry out the sacrifices, which were all meant to be pictures of the final sacrifice offered by Christ. But if you had someone with a disease, especially something like leprosy in these days, this is what the priests were called to do. He shall take the, uh, the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. A blood sacrifice costs something for something else to be cleansed. Sprinkling was for cleansing. That's the picture. This is why in the New Testament, when the writer of Hebrews, this blessed book that ties all of this together for us in beautiful form, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not that old tabernacle, now a heavenly one, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but the, by the means of his own blood. So when the when Jesus was on the cross and the temple veil tore in two, that symbolized our openness to go directly to God as people who are in Christ. Because he's taken down that dividing wall. His blood has opened the way for us to be with God. And that's what the author of Hebrews refers to. And he says in continuation, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred. Verse 15 so shall he sprinkle many nations. And as a result of this astounding work, as a result of his suffering, there will be a subduing of even the mouths of kings who usually could say whatever they want because they're kings. There would be a speechless amazement and astonishment with this exacted plan of God to save. Something this grotesque would stop a person in their tracks. They'd be speechless. The shutting of the mouth was the involuntary effect of this overpowering impression of Christ for us. It signified an extreme amazement that even kings and rulers witnessed. His sacrifice will be a revelation to the nations about why he came and what he did. This is why Paul writes in Romans. You can see why Isaiah is so pivotal to understanding the New Testament. So much of what is in the, Old, in the New Testament is, is prefigured in Isaiah. Paul writes in Romans 15, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Now listen to what Paul says. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. You see, in preaching the gospel, you preach Christ crucified. You preach him in all the way that the scripture lays out. How is a person made right with God? By trusting the finished work of Jesus on their behalf. What's his work that he finished? Isaiah 53, the gospel accounts. 
what we know to be true. We express this. And when we express this, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. They will be shocked at the saving work of the servant Savior. If you've told the message and people just won't listen, he's not saying don't say it anymore. But go where it has not been told. Because when they hear what Jesus has done, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. I fear that much of what goes out from churches has rendered people ignorant of what Jesus really has done. You might gather from this, well, people are saturated with the gospel in America, so go somewhere else. Yes, do that. But people are saturated with falsity. They're saturated with no bloody cross. So they have no view of the gospel for real. They don't really know how to be saved because they're never told what Jesus had to do for us to be saved. So they think they're okay. So we have churches full of people who have never heard. Those who have never been told of him, they'll see. And those who have never heard will understand when they read of the servant of Jehovah as Scripture displays him. E.J. Young, a great commentator, wrote, in former prophecies of the Messiah, he's talking about before this one in Isaiah, the message of salvation has been presented in veiled form, but now for the first time it is set forth with glorious clarity. Before Isaiah's prophecy, there was plenty of revelation for any person to trust on God for salvation. It's always been this way. Abraham believed God's promises of salvation, so it was counted to him as righteousness. And God proved it to him through the sacrifice and all the rest of the ongoing revelation. Always plenty enough to rest upon God's promise and salvation and know it could not come from ourselves. But the clarity of how God would exactly do this doesn't come into view until we read it here. And that's why Young says, Now for the first time, it is set forth with glorious clarity. He goes on to say, it is a message that could not possibly have its origin in the sinful heart of man. For all religions of human origin find in man himself the answer to all problems. But this message points to the servant of the Lord as their only hope. The fourth servant song of Isaiah opens by foretelling Christ's exaltation and humiliation for God's people. The fourth servant song explains how guilty people are made innocent, how unholy people are made righteous. The story of Jesus' life and work, it's shocking when you see how it ends in Scripture, at least before his exaltation. It's astounding. It's stunning. The story of Jesus' life and work has shocked and amazed anyone who hears it. We, the guilty ones, are redeemed and set free by this unthinkable sacrifice of our innocent representative, God's servant, Jesus himself. So, congregation, how, how might this work of Christ apply to you personally? How might it apply to us? Rest upon Christ. Rest upon Christ and his finished work for you. Do you see how, how insulting it is to God to act as though we could add something to what you see here? Rest in him alone. Trust no other merit but the merit of Christ for your eternal life. Because when you stand before God in judgment, all you will have is Christ. And he is enough. Let's pray.
O sacred head, once wounded, and with grief and shame it was weighed down our Lord Jesus, scornfully surrounded with thorns. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss will now be ours. All we have, O Lord, is Christ. And we will spend eternity thanking you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.